0: Today, we talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but just being included doesn't necessarily make us feel like we belong. How to do DEI effectively, after the music.
1: Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service. And check out our upcoming events at UpperHouse.org.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. We recently welcomed the Honorable Rodney Hood for a day of events here at UpperHouse. He helped us to explore some of the things he's working on as the chair of the National Credit Union Administration, including faith and financing, housing equity, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our producer, Jesse Koopman, got to sit down with him for a conversation covering Rodney's views and hopes for inclusion and belonging in the workplace and the church. Rodney E. Hood is the chairman of the National Credit Union Administration and the first person of color in that role. He's held that role since 2019. He's also on the board of directors of NeighborWorks America, one of the nation's largest affordable housing and community development organizations. Rodney has served for decades in both public and private roles in the finance sector. He also serves on a number of other civic boards. He's a native of Charlotte, North Carolina, and holds a bachelor's degree in business, communications, and political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Please enjoy this upwards conversation with Rodney Hood and Jesse Koopman. Rodney, welcome to Upwards. How are you today?
2: I am great. It's great to be here in Madison, Jesse, and I'm so enjoying my time here on the Madison campus. Oh, I'm
3: glad to hear it. So Rodney, we got to spend much of the day yesterday together. We talked about finance, we talked about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and we talked about home equity. Um, So I, I really wanted to take some time to sit down today and talk specifically about diversity, equity, inclusion, and or called DEI from now on. And Hear more about your story and how, why this is something that matters to you. I want to start off with just asking you to share a story from your personal life early on, whether it be in your career or your young life, where you experienced racism that you felt either DEI came to your
2: rescue or you wish it had. That's a really good question. And I wish I could just tell you one example, Jesse. I could say that there are day-to-day examples of what DEI has meant for me as a man of color. And I would begin just by saying in 2019, I became the first African-American in the United States to ever oversee a federal banking regulatory agency in Washington, D.C. I became the chairman of the National Credit Union Administration. We're the regulatory body that oversees nearly 5,000 credit unions that insure the accounts of 135 million Americans throughout the United States. Assets approximate $2.2 trillion. And yes, it was remarkable that I was able to become the first black to oversee an agency of that magnitude. That means we've never had an African American with the Federal Reserve at that level, the FDIC, the OCC, the list goes on. So one would think, Wow, Rodney has so arrived that that means that DEI is no longer something he has to care about because he has really attained this wonderful position. Mm -hmm. Fast forward two weeks later where I'm going on a business trip. I'm with my chief of staff who is not a minority and we are going to check in and everyone at the hotel was genuflecting to the chief of staff when he's having to tell them, no, Mr. Hood, he is the principal. I am here to assist him. And he was able to say, Rodney, I have never seen what you as a man of color go through than when I began working with you uh, a few weeks ago. And I tell you all the story because many people think that if you have achieved a number of things in the black community or the ethnic Mm -hmm. community, it means that you are far removed from a lot of these issues regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. And Jesse, I'll tell you another story. I... Like many of us in the United States, mm-hmm. we all watched in horror. as horror. So We saw the egregious disregard for life playing out when George Floyd uh, was killed. Um, I tell folks that I could very well have had a similar experience as that as a man of color. And the first thing people say, how could that be possible that you could say that that could happen to you? And I say, because as a man of color. No one stops me if when not if I'm stopped, but when I'm stopped for driving, and that happens routinely, it's always the thought that oh, no one would ever stop Rodney because we've seen a CV. Yeah. Well, the the sheriffs or the policemen don't ask me for my CV. The assumption is if you stop someone of my hue with my pigmentation, well, let's just say if we stop and we're going to probably find something wrong, and then we could have a, a reason for. Uh, arresting him. So they stopped me. I have a clean driving record. I've never had parking tickets. So uh, the people who normally stop me, they're very frustrated when they come back to my car. You don't have any warrants out for your arrest. You have no alimony payment. So they're (laughs) almost just despondent that this person who looks like me had a clean record. So the fact that DEI now is something that we have in the lexicon, Jesse, I would say that I don't know if it saved me, but I would say that now it's made me want to talk about it more convincingly. I have a a platform to be with you to talk about these issues. I'm just one African-American man that's trying to make a difference. What about the others out there who don't even have the platform to -hmm. do this? So I just want to do what I can to champion these issues and to advance them. And you're allowing me to do so by inviting me to join you today. And we're so blessed that you are. Uh, So Ronnie,
3: so you talk about the experiences you're having today. I remember yesterday you shared a little bit about your backstory a little bit where you had the talk with your dad mm-hmm. and, and how you felt like that was something that everybody experienced potentially. Can you, can you share a little bit of that story with our audience?
2: Yes, I'd be happy to, Jesse. And yes, I shared the talk. And again, when I saw what transpired with George Floyd's uh, untimely demise there in Minneapolis, again, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And I talked about the talk that you're mentioning. It was my father uh, knew that I was getting ready to get my driver's license. He said, son, this is what you need to do, not if you're stopped, but when you're stopped. And that is to put your hands at the 12 o'clock position to make sure on the steering wheel, that is, and to make sure you're making eye contact with the policeman. And when they're asking you for your driver's license and the registration to still make eye contact and no sudden movements. And again, I assume that all of my, friends were being given the same taught. And I lived in a predominantly uh, non-minority neighborhood, went to um, schools that were either private or really in maybe the more affluent parts of the city of Charlotte. So with that being said, I just assumed that everyone was having those same types of experiences with Mm -hmm. their parents. And Jesse, you talk about the talk from my father, where mother also, as you recall from yesterday's story, mother would often come out to the car to make sure that the brake lights were working, the signal lights were working appropriately, and I would even joke with my friends. Do your Does your mom come out every time you're driving? Like, no, Rodney. Maybe it's because you're an only child. Maybe because your parents are overly protective. No, it was her way of ensuring that I had mm-hmm. no reason uh, to give an authority uh, a, a reason for uh, stopping me. So those were the extra precautions that one really has to take in the black community. And, and you're, we're only talking about, what, roughly 35, 40 years ago. Yeah. And the talk is still taking place today. I do hope that we can get to the point where we're no longer having to tell folks what to do because there's a 99.95% chance that if you're a minority, you're going to be stopped. But, but you know, that is my shared experience. And Jesse, what I do, rather than lament that experience, mm-hmm. rather than play the violin, I look at it as an opportunity to talk about these activities. I look at it as an opportunity to say, this is why we need to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's why I'm so glad that, again, your show is providing me with that opportunity
3: yeah, i'm I'm really, really excited. So looking at the the next level of your life after secondary education, you're growing up, you're getting involved in finance. Now finance is one of those crazy industries where it's even bigger deal than a lot of other industries in mm-hmm. America. Uh, tell
2: me about what it was like getting started in finance. You know what? I took a pretty secure path to finance, as you may recall from yesterday. Um, My story is one that, yes, I always thought I was going to go into business, but I also thought I was going to become an Episcopal priest. I took an opportunity to do a short-term missionary assignment in Africa, where I lived in Zambia. I lived in Zimbabwe. I enjoyed being able to teach the Bible, read the Bible, do uh, many sermons with some of the folks that we were uh, meeting with while they're there uh, in Harare and Lusaka. Uh, but as t- uh, the missionary trip uh, came to an end, I kept thinking, well, gee, in the movies, if one goes into the ministry, they are jostled out of their <laughs> bed by a bolt of lightning, and they're, to- they're thrown to the ground. And then fast forward in the movie, and then you see this person behind a pulpit. Well, I didn't have anything close to that experience. So I said, well, maybe God, just after all, doesn't want me in the ministry. So I went into finance. I went into commercial banking, did a lot of work in real estate finance. And one of the things that I was able to do early in my banking career is after especially telling a priest friend that, hey, I didn't go into ministry because I didn't feel that calling. uh, He says, well, Rodney, one needn't wear the clerical collar to make a difference in people's lives. Amen. And he gave me this sort of talk about you can still transform communities in a way that he couldn't as a minister that I could because I could work in finance. I believe that finance can be a force for good. So for the nearly the past 30 years, Jesse, I've worked in areas such as affordable housing, economic development, urban renewal. I, unlike being in the clerical mission, I can still talk about transforming the lives of marginalized, underserved communities. Mm -hmm. I look at my work now, even as a financial regulator, that is my mission. That is my North Star. I am serving God by being able to really help the least amongst us. And I am so thankful for that missionary experience because while it really allowed me to, to grow in my faith, it also allowed me to recognize that when we are called to serve, it doesn't need to all be behind a pulpit. And I'm so fortunate that in my finance, which I do believe that finance can be a force for absolutely. good. Absolutely. absolutely.
3: So we talked a little bit about yesterday, mm-hmm. how in the world of finance, and I mean, we even just went at the top of the show, we talked about how you were the first mm-hmm. to ever be leading a regulatory body in the banking industry in America, being the one and only, and talk about how that applies to diversity, and equity, inclusion. I mean, I think there is, it's such a fascinating story when we look at whether it be finance or politics or other spheres where if there is somebody who is a non-majority, mm-hmm. they are often the one and only. Mm-hmm. Can, so for people who are trying to understand why a DEI is so important, tell us what it's like to be the one and only.
2: Well, it can be a little lonely sometimes. Uh, but again, uh, when you think about the work that I've done, as I mentioned, I went to schools where I was often the only minority in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I went into a... Profession where there are not a number of African Americans either in finance or if there are not a lot of them in upper management. And it is difficult at times being the one and only because you feel that there is a global spotlight on you. If you make one mistake, there's the whisper campaign. Oh my goodness he didn't know the formula for really looking after how do you do net interest margin tables (laughs) and things of that nature whereas the non-minority can just say hey i may have forgotten what i learned in business school and so there's always this questioning when you're the one and only there's this thing of imposter syndrome where folks go through life thinking should i really be here am i here because of my merit so when you're the one and only it often means that you're having to continually demonstrate your core competencies you're having to demonstrate that you're there because of your ability and not because of dei types of issues and what i mean not because of dei issues i really want folks when they're looking at diversity equity and inclusion to know we're not saying checking a box there's nothing about the tenets of bringing people together based on their ability to say, hey, we have people that are diverse, but they all have the skill sets. And I try to let folks know who are advocating, Mm -hmm. do not think that DEI means that you're lessening standards. People tend to have this misnomer, this misguided notion that we're talking about, oh, it's just gonna be um, not having high ideals. No, it's about having a seat at the table. It's about casting a wide net when it comes to applicants and positions. And it's about recruiting, talent, such that you can have, again, diversity of opinions, and so that there's not the one and only. I talked about a survey on yesterday that uh, the McKinsey Institute Mm -hmm. did a whole bit of research about how companies do yeoman's work when it comes to recruiting and financial services, but after year three, almost 60% of those minority candidates leave an organization and you're thinking, how can that be? They made a lot of efforts. They wanted to do the recruiting, where the recruiting was impo- was important, but there was nothing around retention. It was nothing around that building that sense of belonging. And I know what it's like to have, oftentimes, to sit at the table. People love saying, "Yes, we're going to invite people who are like Rodney into our fold." But you invite me, but I'm ignored, or I don't get the voice that I need. So mm-hmm. it's not as it's not enough just to say, "Hey." We've done enough. We've given you to seat at the table. But no, I want to be able to participate. I want to be engaged. Yeah. I want to be able to bring my true, authentic self to the table.
3: I think there's a, a word that we talked about a little bit yesterday. John loves to talk about in terms of DEI. And that's the word belonging. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a a great concept to to dig into here, forced a little chew on a little bit. So it, DEI isn't necessarily just about inclusion, right? <laughs> so the, the word inclusion is in DEI, but it's it's more than that. <laughs> It's, it's about wanting to actually be somewhere and feel like you're not just a token, but that you actually belong. How, how do organizations embrace that notion of belonging and help people who are being included, not just be included?
2: You know, that's a really good question. And You're right. DEI, by virtue of having inclusion in it, people think, well, hey, you're sitting around the conference table. You're one of the three minorities that we've hired. You should feel included. No. And to your point, it's not just about saying that you're included because you're invited. It needs to be more intentional than that. And when I say intentionality, that means are you building the culture? Does it mean are you embracing in your decisions some of the the things that I bring unique to the table? Mm-hmm. Are you asking for my views? Can I bring my true, authentic self to the table? Can I talk to you openly as opposed to having to know and playing second-guessing games Being a part of a culture, having that sense of belonging means, are you going to ask me to maybe host an event that maybe is important to my culture? Uh, If we're looking at things, whether it be maybe the holidays, we may choose to celebrate in different fashions. Is there an opportunity for me to maybe do something that's unique to me? Those are the things that you build by way of saying belonging, Mm -hmm. uh, but you want them to, it has to be ongoing. It's one of those things you can't turn it on and off like a a faucet. I think many people think, well, I have built a a sense of inclusion uh, and belonging because we celebrated Black History Month. Well, it's Mm -hmm. nice if you're Mm -hmm. gonna do that for the month of February, Mm -hmm. but what about the other 11 months out of the year? Are you still embracing some of those types of activities? One of the things that I tell folks is the DEI, yes, it's nice, it's aspirational, but you need to also look at cultural shifts that need to take place. And you need to also look at, again, through changing the culture, through changing the mindset, that is how you can cultivate cultivate and bolster a sense of belonging. But again, it's not like a faucet. And again, it needs to be intentional. And one of the things that I've done, even with the organizations that I run now, I did a number of work with employee resource groups. And mm-hmm. I hope that a lot of the folks listening today A lot of companies and nonprofits, for that matter, they are building these resource groups where people of the same ethnicity can get together. People who are perhaps veterans, people who are perhaps uh, entrepreneurs, they all get together around a shared experience to do different events. Well, one of the things that I've been doing is I take all of our ERGs and I take the leaders of those and bring them together to say, What have been some of the impediments? What have been some of the barriers that you've seen here at the organization that we want to address so that we can help folks realize that management wants to invest in removing barriers and things of that nature? And you know what, just asking the question, what can we do to better invest in your career? What can we change around the agency that you want to see? Um, We had a number of students uh, or employees who... We're all taking these different exams, but for some reason, uh, as you are getting ready for that advancement uh, to be a, a principal examiner, and that means that you are now able to go out and really regulate ex- credit on your mm-hmm. own accord, the minority candidates were not doing well on the exam. And how is that? They had the core aptitudes Well, it was that one piece of the exam that was subjective. It was around role-playing. It was where the minority candidates were not really comfortable talking about how they would respond to a situation, how they would handle conflict. And the majority or the uh, non-minority employees, they were able to slide through with greater aplomb and savoir faire because the leaders looked like them. There was a cultural affinity. There was a shared experience in how one uh, handles conflict. And so what did we decide to do? We decided to create more opportunities for folks to have more networking opportunities outside of office hours, going to sporting events, going to museums, doing covered dish potluck dinners. Now, of course, that was harder to navigate during the pandemic, but we have now returned to uh, an in-person work environment. But Jesse, just the fact that Again, the minority candidates were afraid to speak openly because they did not have those relationships. So just those are the types of things. And so now there's a sense of belonging. And now the folks feel more comfortable. There are friendships yeah. that are growing out of this. But I have to tell folks who are listening, it cannot be forced. Yeah. It needs to be organic. You cannot micromanage friendships. You cannot <laughs> tell majority populations to go out there and befriend a minority. That does not work that way. That's not authentic. authentic. But I think it's people, like you and I have gotten yeah. along over the past day or two. Oh, very well. People want to connect.
3: <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great note. And I, I think to that point, you, you can't mandate it. You can't control it. But you can foster opportunity.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think that's something that you've reflected on, like talking about the potlucks and all these other <laughs> things. I think that's something, if you're passionate about DEI and inclusion and specifically belonging, mm-hmm. one of the things you could do to really foster that, it is beyond just having the people at the table make space for people to get to know one another beyond just interacting in the boardroom for five minutes a week in a meeting. Exactly, And I think it's it's in those relationships where we truly get to know one another, where those boundaries really get broken and and belonging happens. It's where we accept one another because we know one another because you can't truly accept somebody if you don't know them.
2: Well, exactly. And again, that's why I'm all about relationship building. And Jesse, again, growing up in the South, African-American, there were some... Uh, white children, friends of mine that will often ask, well, what did you eat for dinner last night? I say, oh, we had meatloaf last night. You eat meatloaf? I mean, again, I'm I'm making it sound like this Mm -hmm. is like from the 1920s, but no, but again, Folks today, though, I think are a little bit more attuned to building relationships. I do think this generation that we have now, whether it be Gen Z and the ones that are coming after them, which I don't even think has been named yet, I do think that they are looking more open-mindedly about race and mm-hmm. culture. I do think that just because of the speed of technology that people are able to read more and experience more. So I'm hoping that As we build a culture of belonging, I do when I even go to shop, and I'm going to be funny here, there are oftentimes when I go shopping after work, if I'm in my suit and tie, I may have just given a speech on Wall Street, but then I maybe want to go get something at the, the, I don't know, maybe i need another tie or something. And Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, I'm going to be mistaken for not being the shopper who is like the CEO or chairman of an agency, but I'm going to be, sir, I need to find shoe department. Can you take me there? And I said, oh, well, actually I'm shopping as well, but I tend to come to this store often. So I'll be happy mm-hmm. to show you where it is. And that is not happening as much now because now when I see the younger population and this, I almost wanted to give this young man the high five, but I didn't. That would have been a little creepy. But the these young college, these young kids, I think they were maybe in high school, maybe shopping for prom or something. They were looking at bow ties and I may be looking for something, and the guy says, hey, I need to get some help. And someone says, why don't you ask that guy over there? And then the other kid says, I don't think he works here. I think he's (laughs) shopping the way we are. And I want to say high five for not making that assumption. Now, again, there are a lot of hardworking men and women who Mm -hmm. work in shops, so I'm not at all disparaging the hardworking people who have jobs and who are stimulating the economy. But I want to get away from the mindset that when you see a minority and – what would be a high-end store, whether it be a Nordstrom's or something of that nature. I want people to recognize that people of color shop at some of the same stores. And again, that next generation was not so um, eager to make that assumption that because I was there uh, in a suit and tie, uh, was shopping. So again, it's those little subtleties. And I know folks who think, Roddy, do you go around looking for microaggressions? <laughs> no, it's not that one looks for them. Uh, it's just that when you are of color, you just tend to recognize that there are things that happen. And you know what? If I let microaggression stop me, I would not be able to do any of the things that I've done. It, would, could, be, it could make me so defeated that I would not even want to get out of bed yeah. some morning. So the thing is, I learn from it, I grow from it, and I try to look at those moments to really um, – it's a moment of truth. So it's yeah. how I respond. If I were to respond to the people like that, the the, the guy wanted to know about the shoe department, I could have been really mean and belligerent. I could have walked him through my CV to say, <laughs> oh, didn't you know that I was just on C-SPAN? Or I could have said, oh, sir, I don't work here. I do come here often. I think it's over there. So if anything, it lets him know, well, gee, I need to maybe be more careful. And because mm-hmm. I didn't frighten him with my response, again, I look at every engagement I have with someone as, What have i done to really help them learn and grow it's a great way to look at things Mm -hmm. i like that a
3: lot so on that story um talking about where you are today Mm -hmm. i love what some of your goals are and some of your aspirations for the work that you're doing in your current role some of it's really about dei Mm -hmm. some of it's about racial dei but we talked a lot about yesterday in, in various capacities the the bigness of DEI and how it goes well beyond just racial or even <laughs> gender equality. Can you talk to us a little bit more about some of your larger vision for DEI beyond that?
2: Yes, Jesse. I think, again, as a man of color, I recognize that there are those in the DEI space and there are those who want to only discuss it from the lens of ethnicity and race. And yes, that is one of the core components. But as I tell folks we need to look at diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging holistically. What does that mean? When I talk about looking at it holistically, I'm going beyond race and ethnicity, I'm talking about disabled and differently able populations. What are we doing for those individuals with disabilities who still want gainful employment? What are we doing with those folks with disabilities who still want to have access to affordable financial services? What are we doing around tribal and rural communities? These are individuals who come from communities where there have been broadband challenges, where I talked about how I'm hoping that technology today is helping people learn and grow because of the speed of information over the Internet. Well, folks coming from rural communities are not having that same experience. So what Mm -hmm. are we doing to build a strategy around rural? What about tribal and some of our indigenous populations? Some of the intractable issues that I've seen when I've gone to some of these areas means that we need to look at opportunities to provide hope and economic prosperity in some of those communities. Justice-involved individuals. What about people who have had a criminal violation? They perhaps have paid their debt to society, but yet in so many instances in society— They still go around as the scarlet letter. If you all remember your Hawthorne, Uh, Mm -hmm. remember the scarlet letter where she was always embarrassed by the town square. I don't want everyone to have to be like the young lady in the scarlet letter. That means if you've paid your debt to society, I want to give opportunities for these individuals to have gainful employment. I created a second chance initiative for folks to work at the institutions that I regulate. So second chance is another component of building out an effective and I think an appropriate DEI strategy. And also, first generation college students. And what do I mean by that? You're thinking they've already gone to college, they're getting some good opportunities for jobs. But you know what? Many of them may not only were they the first to go to college, that means that many of them may be the first to enter into the types of clerical jobs or the types of professional organizations or law practice or accounting. Who's helping these individuals navigate a lot of the things that you would expect when you go to some of these types of firms and organizations. So are we building out a culture around the first generation students? So those are some of the expansive ways that I am looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's broadening the box. And Jesse, I am not going to make any bone about this. I am in a position now where I can take these strategy stands. I can take these positions, but not just taking them to garner attention, but then to have demonstrable action. So every group that I've just mentioned in terms Mm -hmm. of broadening that DEI uh, equation, we are hiring folks from Second Chance. We're hiring folks with disabilities. We are looking to make sure that when we bring on first-generation college students, that we're helping them navigate just even the the nomenclature of banking. And I mean, a lot of these individuals, and maybe most families don't, but a lot of… youngsters who grew up where their parents were maybe CEOs or CFOs, they can talk about cash flow analysis at the dinner table, but not everyone grew up that way. So Absolutely. getting them really comfortable with the lexicon and all that, demystifying a lot of these activities. So I just want folks to know that when people like me have opportunities to follow up with their wishes with demonstrable action, that is when you can have more folks that are moving the needle, setting expectations, but not just setting them, but equipping people with the, the tools to, to exceed and meet those expectations. One of the reasons
3: I was so excited to host you today was the fact that not only do you love and embrace these values, which are core to who I am as a person, but you have also succeeded thoroughly in the space that you're in. You're a good example of, Success can happen if you allow people to be included and allow them to feel like they belong. And even if it's not perfect, because your story has not been a perfect one where you've every step along the way been included and felt like you belonged by any stretch of the no, imagination. I don't get applause,
2: but I walk into the room. No, exactly. not all the time.
3: So, but, but it's, it's amazing to me that, that you've fought through all that and you've achieved. And now you're leveraging this space where you can say, I've been a success. Look at what DEI can do when you just allow someone to flourish. So I thank you for your example and thank you for continuing the work of DEI as you progress through your career. And I know that's something you're going to be continuing to do. Um, With that said, talking about finance, let's want to ask a question that I think came up in an obscure way yesterday. I want to ask a little more directly. What's something the financial industry can do? So I know what one of the things that I I found interesting. I listened to an amazing story about uh, Discover and how they opened a <laughs> South Side of Chicago call center mm-hmm. to really kind of embrace this value of inclusion mm-hmm. and and diversity. What is that a good example of this, or is, are there other examples of financial partners or industry leaders that are doing this
2: well? Of course, I think that that Discover piece with the South Side of Chicago is one piece. We all can think of stories like that, and again. There's one thing that I will say, and I'll say it loudly, DEI now has so gotten into the lexicon that companies want to do it. I think that generation, I was mentioning those youngsters (laughs) who now know that if they see a person of color, well-dressed in a department store, may be shopping like they are, they now get it. They get the big picture. These young generation members, they are going to demand that companies with whom they do business are going to have people who reflect the society that we live in today so I love the fact that financial services providers are looking at ways around building a pipeline of talent. I talked about how we tend to lose a lot of uh, minority uh, employers or employees after that third year in yeah. banking and finance. Well, why don't we start early in building a pipeline so that we can let folks know, hey, this is what you're gonna need is you wanna go into the financial services arena. I was very fortunate a few years ago when I assumed the chairmanship in April, 2019, We created an internship program from high schools that are in minority areas within Washington, D.C. There's an area called Anacostia, east of the river, and some of the poverty rates there are just really abysmal. But these are some students that live there that are very bright, motivated. They go to some of the top magnet schools. We were able to bring a lot of these students into our agency. We were able to give them Apple computers. We were able to give them mentors. We were able to teach them about financial services, financial literacy, financial capability. I addressed the students. So now we are bringing them back now for the fourth summer. Some of these students are already getting ready to go off to college where they want to now pursue careers and financial services. And I'm delighted about that. In fact, I've told them I may have been the first person of color to chair a banking agency. I bet one of you may be the second, third, or fourth. So those are the types of things that we need to do more of around creating a pipeline. Another area that I think is important is when I mentioned the disability community. Mm-hmm. I have done a lot of work where I talk about of American households unable to obtain $400 in the event of a family emergency. If you overlay that with a person with a disability, that figure goes to 65%. If it's a minority with a disability, 84% of minorities with disabilities could not obtain $400 in the event of a family emergency. So. We have been been really intentional now about hiring individuals with disabilities. We're recruiting uh, from a college outside of Washington, D.C. called Gallaudet, which is a college for the deaf and hard of hearing. You know what? People who are deaf and hard of hearing, they can become accountants. They can become technologists. So we are broadening out that whole arena of what it means to bring in diverse talent. And Mm -hmm. that's another thing that I'm proud of the fact that other companies are also looking at the disability community as a source for talent. Jesse, there is a war for talent going on in the world today, meaning we have vacancies. I have about 50 open positions at my agency There are other uh, employers in government, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC. So we need to now go after talent. We now need to pursue it aggressively. And going after the same traditional recruiting sources is not helping us fill that void. So again, looking at second chance, looking at uh, tribal, rural communities for recruiting, Mm -hmm. those are all the things that financial services providers are doing. And I think because of that McKinsey study that I referenced earlier about the the people leaving within three years, I think we now know to play more attention around retention. I think the DEI strategies around employee resource groups help with that. I think around having mentors and sponsors will help with that. But so those are all things that businesses are sort of implementing today. And yeah. I'm very excited. I think it's something
3: along that line that we talked about yesterday the importance of allies. Mm hmm. So if we're talking about the notion of belonging and mm-hmm. building relationships is the way to feel like you belong in an mm-hmm. environment and not just being included, but really belonging. Mm-hmm. Being an ally is something that I think is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Could you share a story of, of an ally that you've had in your career?
2: Yes, of course. And what I, that meant to you? Well, it's so important. And I want people to realize I often qu- uh, just I get questions from uh, non-minority or or white individuals and Rodney, I really support this. My heart is for diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I don't feel that I have a voice because I'm white. And I tell them that just because one is white doesn't mean that they could not support the pillars of diversity, equity, Amen. and inclusion. Amen. I wouldn't be where I am today were it not for those forward thinking white leaders who pull me aside and say, hey, I think you have a bright future. They were the ones that gave me encouragement. They were the ones that gave me thoughts around what I should major in. Jesse, even when it came to taking the presidential appointment, I called my mentor, who is a white gentleman who's now almost 70 years of age, and basically said, I may leave corporate America for a bit to take a political appointment. What do you think of that? So this is someone who has mentored me, has guided me, who knows what it's like to really help invest in someone's success. And I think Many folks in the white community need to realize that you can be an ally just as I mm-hmm. have that wonderful ally, that wonderful support. That means taking me out for dinner, or am I taking him out for dinner <laughs> too? So I don't want to be that it's always it works like, both directions, works yeah, both directions. exactly. Maybe when I was in college, it was nice, but now I get to reciprocate uh, just as well. But the point I'm making is I don't want folks in the white community feel that they don't have a voice. You can be an ally, an, an ally. And I also, mm-hmm. I want to use the term sponsor. I don't know if that gets mentioned a lot. Mentors are really important. And that's when you will have the, in many instances, it could be the minority, young employer, or employee meeting with that maybe older, more experienced person who's there at the firm. And the mentor can be either a different race or maybe in the same race, but it's someone that's helping you navigate. But the sponsor is totally different. The sponsor, and what I'm getting at there, sponsor could be the ally, but it also is that person who is normally very senior, who is maybe a C-suite, chief financial officer, chief technology officer. The sponsor is the one that is advocating for your behalf when decisions matter. That's when the board is about to meet. That's when promotions are about to occur. The sponsor is the one to say, hey, I've seen Rodney's work product. We did a cross-functional Event and he was able to shine. So that may be the person that you want on your corner. Mm-hmm. And that's why I tell folks, build relationships, try to get to know folks. And I'm not saying go out and build relationships because of something Machiavellian that you're wanting to get to know people, but yeah. build organic relationships to have that that sponsor who's gonna be talking for you and on behalf of you when the other senior leaders are listening. So those are the types of things that I think foster success, Those are the types of individuals that can help you. Allies, I'm not saying they can't. I mean, in fact, sometimes you can maybe use the term ally and sponsor synonymously, but at the end of the day, it all goes into building out your your relationships. And I wanna tell a lot of people who are listening, because I know you touch a lot of young lives here at the university. When you are growing in your careers, everyone, please recognize that not every position is gonna be linear. There can be some lateral opportunities. Mm-hmm. You may get an opportunity that it may not be a promotion. It may not even be a raise, but they're going to want you to learn maybe about a difficult, a different skill set that you can build. So I want folks to recognize that not everything is linear in terms of your career progression. Lateral moves can also prepare you for things in the future. And and I know for me, I've taken opportunities that how do I say it? Mm-hmm. I've often taken opportunities that perhaps no one else wanted. And it mm-hmm. means by that, because my desire around diversity, equity, and inclusion, that we weren't calling it this 30 years ago, Jesse. We were calling it economic development. We were calling it yeah. uh, urban renewal. But again, because my North Star has always been through the lens of faith, I've always looked at, if I'm given this opportunity, it gives me a wonderful opportunity to glorify God. It gives me a chance to make something special out of it. And if I can give you an example, I was once at a company where um, my boss came in and said, hey, Rodney, we're giving millions of dollars to some of the groups that serve the disability community. We're giving grants and we get to go to banquets and we get to sort of take pictures. But is there something that we can do beyond just buying a corporate table? And again, no one wanted to pull, put their hand up in the air. I said, you know what, give me, let me give it some thought what we were able to do because I wanted to do something different. It went from us going to galas to us developing what I call it a diversity initiative around uh, disability access. And what do I mean by that? It meant creating, going to conferences where people were talking about disabilities, Jesse, but there was no one with a disability in the (laughs) audience. So we created a disability scholarship program. We would invite people who were blind, the deaf, hard of hearing, people who had other even disabilities that may not have even been visible. Mm -hmm. We gave them opportunities to get scholarships to come to conferences, but we then went a step further. We then gave them speaking roles. We then gave them opportunities to keynote conferences. We then went a step further and built an internal database of people with disabilities being in their own speakers bureau. And I'm saying that this was something that we were able to do. It went from being that philanthropist around just buying a table, but to really giving individuals with disabilities a seat at the table, giving them a prominent role to play. And we loved working with the disability ambassadors and those individuals that ended up becoming employees of the company that I was working with at the time. So that is an example of me or my sort of saying, hey, let's do something that perhaps no one else wanted to give the time to. And I love that. And again, it allowed me to continue to serve God in my workplace, because again, helping marginalized, underserved communities, the least amongst us.
3: And I think that's a a great Christian value to emphasize. And I love that. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. I want to also ask one thing that just to have you share about the Capabilities of these people that you've incorporated. Because I'm assuming that you're, you talk about expanding the field and, and reaching out and including the, uh, the, all, all these people, but you're also not doing it just, just to include them.
2: No, we're not doing it to include them. In you, fact, that's the really, they, they've come in, they've excelled, right? Yes. Oh, Jesse, they've come in and excelled. They've also challenged how we think about opportunities and growth. And Jesse, thank you for giving me this question because I think in and of itself, there's this idea that okay i'm just going to hire them and let them just sit in a corner and then i can have them in marketing brochures and it shows that hey look at us we have this wonderful utopia that we've created and no we're saying when you bring in these individuals they're going to help you with your thought leadership mm-hmm. we used to even um sort of test products for some of the folks so when we're looking at uh American with Disability Act compliance, we ask our employees who have disabilities, does this, how would you look at this? If you're looking at an ATM, are you able to navigate the wheelchair? Or is this the right color coding? We are helping um, develop our plans and our strate- strategies by using folks from the communities that we're bringing them into. I'll never forget years ago, uh, there was this really nice splashy, marketing firm that was coming out with a wonderful glitzy campaign to help with outreach to the Hispanic community. Well, when you shared the campaign with some of the people from our organization that were also uh, Hispanic, they said, well, this is not the language that folks would use. This is such a a cultivated language that you don't want to be a PhD student. So and just putting language into Spanish does not allow you to mm-hmm. really reach that target audience. So again, it was for some of the employees that we had recently recruited. So those are some opportunities for people to recognize that, hey, you're not just going out checking boxes and saying, hey, your deal is done. Let these individuals be involved in your recruiting. Let them be involved with your minority um, business development. And what I mean by that, I work with a lot of our minorities and the folks with disabilities around um, inclusion regarding minority buying. That means all of the groups have a chamber of commerce: the Hispanic chamber, the disability chamber. Are we able to use those companies to help us with we are needing new? consulting services, new technology providers. So those are the things, really looking at it holistically. Don't just go through the hiring, but see how these individuals can be a part of your overall strategy. And that's what makes DEI sustainable because I'm not saying keeping the group siloed. And many people think that DEI just needs to rest in a little corner. No, it needs to be inculcated throughout the whole enterprise for it to have staying power and for it to really accrete and generate results. I think the
3: notion of embracing differences is really what's coming to mind here. And I think when we talk about embracing differences from a business strategy, it allows us to expand audience, it expands our marketplace reach, it expands um, our ability to connect with an audience. And I think that's something that's really undervalued when we talk about DEI, is it's not just about inclusion and belonging, it's not just about making sure that we're incorporating people, but it's about doing it. (laughs) <laughs> for, about, for for like business reasons, too, for, right? For business reasons,
2: this is a strategy. This is not a touchy, feel good moment. I know a lot of folks, they think, oh, I'm going to feel so much better if I'm adding and checking boxes. And I think that if it's looked at through, I'm going to feel so much better about myself because I've checked a box, then that means that it doesn't have... A lasting ability it means that it's a hobby but to your point jesse when they are looking at it as a strategy and I i mentioned yesterday and i mentioned often when you're embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion, I want folks to look at the data. And what do I mean by the data? Look at the fact that communities of color are one of the fastest growing segments in the United States. So that means that if you want your company to survive mm-hmm. in the future, you cannot ignore these growth segments Absolutely. and these growth opportunities. When I talk about the 65 or so million folks who have been involved with the justice system Are we really finding opportunities to bring them into the fold for business development opportunities? When I talk about the 40% of American households who simply can obtain $400, are we building out financial inclusion strategies that means that we're going to work around financial literacy, financial education? We don't want these individuals going to the pernicious and predatory payday lenders. We want them coming to Credit unions or banks or whoever the legitimate providers of financial services are. So when I tell people about data, I want them to know that that is how they're able to buttress their their support for DEI. I recognize that when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it can be such an emotionally charged argument or emotionally Mm -hmm. in charge conversation. And I'm all right with the emotion, but let's buttress the emotion with the data because at the end of the day, that's what wins when you're looking at budget allocation. Because if you do not tie it to a growth trend or a growth strategy, that can often be the first uh, item on the chopping block if your activity is perceived as a hobby. But if it's a core of your strategy... That it is going to stay there, and 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 I want folks to realize that you're not going to see an immediate uptick in your sales and earnings and all of that in year one. It takes time. Yeah. It's an iterative process. Companies recognize that sometimes steady is the race, but we need to make sure that we are looking at it though through the lens of t- demographic shifts, growth strategies, and if we can speak at it through those terms again, that's what I think makes for a more. Robust Bust, DEI strategy throughout a lot of our organizations. I love that.
3: And talking about that very notion of like being part of a growth strategy, being part of all these things, one of the things I can't help but think about is, is I'm hearing something from somebody in Washington I don't hear often. Um uh, you are in a political office holder. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you call yourself a politician by any stretch. You oh, don't gosh, strike no, me as that no, by any. Level? No, no.
2: Gosh, but, what have I done but, to offend no, you? Oh, no, no, God. no, no.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but, but, so you. Do, I love that you were in Washington espousing these values. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. thing that hurts me a lot is is somebody who also shares these values is I see it under attack all over in the political sphere today. Mm-hmm. There's over 12 states that have legislation on the table to literally remove DEI inclusion language. Mm-hmm in some level from either their legislature or their school, state university systems. Mm -hmm. How do you interact in Washington with people that are, are proposing these almost attacks on DEI?
2: By trying to tell them that DEI is not this misnomer that you have, trying to give them what DEI means to me as someone who's worked on Wall Street, as someone who's chaired an agency, as someone who really gets to really have a wide audience when it comes to talking about these issues. I try to my best, Jesse, to dispel the misconceptions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the reason there are those 12 states that are looking at removing it, because it's been built around the emotion that we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier. It's not been buttressed buttressed at all around data. It's Mm -hmm. not been buttressed at all around research has been more around the emotional issues. It's been this didactic approach that people have said, you need to do this. And if you don't do this, you're a racist and you're a misogynist if you don't support my DEI strategy. And because people have used DEI almost as a a baton or even a bat in some instances to whip people into submission as opposed to having the dialogue about what diversity, equity, and inclusion means. There are those that I would say on all sides of the aisle, or can sometimes use this this term to fit their purposes. Absolutely, and no one wins in that. The the uh, the communities that we're hoping to help are not uh, winning <laughs> anything, but people are using it for their own political uh, gamesmanship. So I, as someone who is a political appointee, but I believe that the role, the work that I do, financial regulation should not really be political. Oh, Financial not. regulation should be devoid of. Political ideology should be about safety and soundness and keeping the American economic system prosperous and robust for this this generation and the next generation. So, Jason, when I meet with the state policymakers, the federal policymakers, I talk about what DEI can and should be if implemented appropriately. And I think I almost wish we could even do away with that term and come up with something else that's more more. I guess, inclusive in the language that we're trying (laughs) to use. Because right now, when you mention DEI in some circles, Mm -hmm. it immediately makes people sort of like, ooh, they tense up. Sustainability is another term that makes a lot of folks tense up or ESG, which is all around environmental, social, and governance. So those are all buzzwords that rightly or wrongly have been used to really build walls as opposed to building bridge, bridges. Think about it, At its core, diversity, equity, and inclusion is about building bridges and not walls. So to the degree that when I'm speaking on this subject, I talk about how it should be devoid of political ideology. You mentioned education. Jesse, I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but I used to be um, a public official when it comes to the state college system of my mm-hmm. home state of North Carolina. I was on the governing body of the university system so that we are the body that oversaw the 17 public universities, the public radio stations, the public broadcasting stations, and the hospitals. So we were looking at some of these issues. We're looking at curricula and things of that nature, but I don't believe that we need to have anything where colleges are telling people they shouldn't have open discourse. And it it bothers me if there's anything that universities should do is have that freedom of expression. They should have that ability to talk about ideas and to debate them. I certainly love what you all have done here in the state of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin idea that it is hallmark is talking about the values and virtues, virtues of a liberal education, the Socratic, Socratic method, testing, researching, having the ability to really think. Coherently and cogently, and I want in, in, in institutions of higher learning to be able to embrace those ideals. And I'm hoping that colleges can get back to that. It's getting to the point now that you can only voice an opinion if others agree with it, and if not, you are uh, uh, shunned, and you're almost like Hester Prim from Scarlet Letter. You're wearing the Scarlet Letter. So let's pray that we can get back to the day, education. Enlightenment And Jesse, even with me as a person who has been very open-minded and a man of faith, I want you to know that when I have open dialogues and I learn from people, I have sometimes been able to change a position on an issue. Mm-hmm. because I've gotten the data, I've gotten information. I think that doesn't show weakness. It shows that I'm open to ideas and I'm open to letting incontrovertible evidence let me realize that perhaps a preconceived notion is not what I once thought it was. And that shows enlightenment.
3: It shows humility and integrity. I Mm -hmm. love that. I want to talk about one more buzzword before we get to our last question here, and that's LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that's, as men of faith and who are passionate about our faith, Mm Um, The church world in particular, this can be a struggle for Mm -hmm. how do we incorporate and how do we love people that maybe necessarily in our book of faith Mm -hmm. or our concept of our faith, it's difficult. How would you speak to people who want to be inclusive and loving, but struggle with this?
2: That's a really good question. And again, as I look at expansively at diversity, equity, and inclusion in the LGBTQIA plus community is one that I think needs to also be included because, again, I look at this through the umbrella of least amongst us marginalized communities and in instances where LGBTQ community folks are not getting full access to financial inclusion, who are not getting jobs for choice. And I do think those days are not as they once were Yesterday, I do think the LGBTQ community has made tremendous inroads when it comes to employment and opportunities around housing and growth and development, and I think. And we're seeing... Um, that play out well, but I do think the faith-based community has been one that has been sort of slow when it comes to full-on embracing that community. And I would just say, as we would embrace anyone in the faith-based community, it's about showing the love of Jesus. It is about welcoming. It's about being embracing. And I don't know about you or anyone, but I tell folks, I don't go around telling someone, oh, because you had three martinis or you were seen smoking or viping or whatever the case is, or vaping, I think it's called. Um, I mean, I can't go around saying whom I'm going to love. Mm-hmm. I am called to love everyone. And Amen. I hope that the church and the faith based community can do that. I mean, who are we to sort of pick out whom we get to love? I don't think Jesus uh, did that when we look at the scriptures. And in fact, if you think about it, he was with uh, the marginalized, Amen. underserved, community of his day. In fact, through the consternation of the Pharisees and others, they thought that he was being a little too inclusive. So I think Jesus was that first sort of proponent for diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. And I certainly think the LGBTQ community should be fully welcomed and embraced. And And I do realize that that's an area that the church is continuing to uh, to pursue. But I just say, love everyone as Christ calls us to love. And let's Again, if you can't welcome people who really want to commit their lives to to the tenets of Christ, who want to really grow, I mean, if they're not going to find that support in the church, then where else are they going to get it if yeah, they man. want to have this void? so feel if they want to feel that void. So I believe that we should call every love everyone as Christ loves us as the church should be that port in the storm. and I just hope that again, through dialogue, through uh, symposia. Uh, but again, it shouldn't take symposia and ongoing dialogue for churches and any group to say, hey, let's not discriminate. We don't discriminate against the disability group. We don't discriminate against rural, tribal. So I don't want to I have any group out there that feels that there's not a sense of belonging. And again, we are called to love and to do so unconditionally, to love our neighbor as thyself and regardless of what someone's sexual identity or orientation is and again I as you know I mention this every day I want every interaction I have with someone to know that I've learned from them I've given them love I've done it unconditionally and again we've talked about the microaggressions Mm -hmm. and all that that I may have experienced as a man of color but again I still want to. I want the end result to be, how have I touched that person? Have I changed a mindset? Yeah. And I don't want to pick and choose. So if I want to make sure if it's an LGBTQ <laughs> this hour or a veteran the next hour or someone that's tribal the next hour, am I being unconditional? And again, you can't turn it on and off like a faucet.
3: I can't think of a better way to end, Rodney. Uh, what a great message for our audience and for everyone uh, to treat people with love and respect and dignity as Christ would. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us yesterday as well. And all that you're doing for our country and our, our people who in this country are being disenfranchised and, and struggling and all the work that you're doing to make them feel included and like they belong.
2: Well, thank you again for the platform you've given me today. And thank you for the work you're doing. You are giving a voice to the voiceless and you're elevating issues that can only continue to help people evolve and to really make this society the great society that it's meant to be through the lens of Jesus Christ.
3: Oh, thank you, Roddy. I hope your travels go well.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on UpperHouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Baer, Audio engineering by Jesse Koopman and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.